A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am glad you're with us on the program today. <sighs> Crazy days in Washington, D.C., and uh, hopefully this doesn't uh, give gun control advocates an opening here to advance their agenda in the House. Uh, meanwhile, the gun control movement is uh, seeing a changing of the guard of sorts. Peter Ambler, the executive director of Giffords, is uh, stepping down. He gave an interview to Politico, made some really interesting comments uh, during that conversation. We're going to highlight some of those here on today's program. Before we do that, however, you know, there's something we got to talk about. Joe Biden's America. It is absolutely crushing us. We've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch meat next time you go to the grocery store. And a digital dollar could be coming on the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that is why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews, and they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. Right now, they're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. So a uh, gun control leader calls it quits is the uh, headline at Politico. But uh, as the paper notes, Peter Ambler is not entirely calling it quits. He will still be a senior advisor to the uh, anti-gun group because that's what happens uh, at Giffords, right? Uh, they've, got, they've got so many senior advisors. Uh, David Chipman, Ryan Busey, Peter Ambler. I'm sure they've got some others floating around there as well. But uh, yeah, Peter Ambler is uh, stepping down as executive director of Giffords. And so they... Uh, sat down in a uh, comic shop in D.C., had a little uh, convo about uh, his time helming the gun control group. And there were some interesting asides. Now, granted, again, this is a gun control advocate talking to folks who are at least, um, I, I have to I have to think, soft supporters of gun control, at the very least, uh, if not to outright uh, anti-gun activists themselves. This was not a combative interview. There were no difficult questions for Peter Ambler. No, no, this was a uh, an amicable chat about uh, his next step. So one of the questions that the uh, political folks asked, not only have politics around guns changed, but so is the makeup of the movement. There are a ton of organizations now, instead of just the big players, talking about the gun control side of things. And Ambler says, I've heard a lot along the way, well, there's just one NRA. Shouldn't there just be one anti-NRA? Oftentimes what matters as much as the message is messenger. And being able to have different leaders in different institutions that are coming to this problem from different perspectives is very helpful. Now, of course, there is just one in array, but there is not only one organization in the pro-Second Amendment space, right? I mean, just like the gun control groups have, uh, or the gun control lobby has, Brady, Every Town slash Moms Demand Action, uh, Giffords. Then you've got, you know, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. You've got uh, smaller groups like Guns Down. You've got to change the ref. Over on the pro-2A side of the equation, you've got the NRA. You've got Second Amendment Foundation, Farms Policy Coalition, Gun Owners of America. 
Um, then you've got, you know, a National Association of Gun Rights. Um, you've got smaller state level organizations, right? Uh, some of which are more active than others, but, you know, California Rifle and Pistol Association, Maryland Shall Issue, Connecticut Citizens Defense League, Gun Owners Action League, just to name a few. Uh, and many of those folks, obviously, are regular guests on uh, Bearing Arms Cam and Company, the leaders of those groups. So it's not just that the gun control lobby has grown. The pro-Second Amendment community has grown as well. And to Ambler's point that, you know, uh, having different leaders in different institutions that are coming at this problem, gun ownership being the problem in Peter Ambler's perspective, um, is very helpful. I think that that's true when it comes to those of us who are fighting to defend and restore our right to keep and bear arms as well. You know, the uh, NRA has not been as uh, involved in litigation. They're still uh, filing lawsuits, don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, since the Bruin decision, and really over the past couple of years, you've really seen groups like the Second Amendment Foundation, Firearms Policy Coalition, obviously has been, you know, dedicated to the litigation side of things. Uh, that, I think, is their chief purview. One of the areas where I, I do get a little concerned that we are falling behind uh, our opponents who would like to infringe upon our right to keep and bear arms is not necessarily in lobbying. I think we're doing okay there. Probably, you know, always stand to do better. Uh, but I'm concerned about the cultural side of things, the, 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 the push to uh, change Americans' attitudes regarding firearms. And the gun control lobby has a an advantage, right? Uh, again, you look at uh, sort of the cultural nexus of power in this country in places like New York and D.C. and Los Angeles. Those are obviously all very anti-gun regimes, right? And those folks who live there either uh, willingly, well, yes, they willingly choose to live under those regimes. They may be just fine with it. Um, you know, one of the things that I don't know if it's ever held me back. I never turned down a job in New York City, for example. But, you know, when you're going through your media career at some point, like New York's, that's 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 the end goal. Right. Well, boy, I want to be on the air in New York, but I don't I don't want to live in New York City. I don't want to live in New Jersey. I don't want to live in Connecticut. I don't want to live in any of the places. If I had a job in New York City, I would have to sacrifice the way I live my life for my job. And I'm not willing to do that. I've, I've never been willing to do that. So the folks who gravitate to these, you know, power centers like uh, New York or D.C. And by the way, when I worked in uh, the D.C. area, I still lived in Northern Virginia. So my Second Amendment rights were still largely intact. I think we are at a disadvantage because, again, I, I, I throw myself out there. I don't want to make those sacrifices. You know, maybe if I decided, you know what, that that is my goal, right? I, I, I want to get as far up the media ladder as I can. And if that means I live in New York City and I can't exercise my right to keep my arms, well, I can still advocate for that right. I, I just wasn't willing to do it. And I don't know how many other gun owners are. Um, so that does put us, I think, at a little bit of a disadvantage. Now, obviously, online media helps to uh, to take away or maybe you know regain some uh, a parity, but I still do think that we are operating at a disadvantage in the cultural space. Um, Amber was also asked about working with the Biden administration. Now, what approach have you found works best for for moving Biden 
Politico asked, which, again, I, I, I take issue with the premise of the question. I don't think Biden needs a lot of prodding when it comes to gun control, maybe to wake up in the morning, maybe to point him in the right direction as he's walking off stage, but not in terms of going after our right to keep and bear arms. I think that is one of his deeply held, sincere beliefs. And honestly, Peter Ambler, I, I think, agrees with me. Uh, he said the day that Manchin Toomey, the gun control proposal to expand background checks, was filibustered, Gabby Giffords was sitting with then-Vice President Biden. And she was devastated. The vice president said something like, Gabby, this is a dark day for the Congress and for the country. But what you'll see here is that this will catalyze people. And that's exactly what happened, Ambler said. To an extent, we elevate the issue and partner with his administration and his advisors and provide the infrastructure that's necessary from the outside. He's somebody that you need to support his policymaking and his work as president more than you need to hold his feet to the fire. In other words, Biden's right there with the gun control groups. Uh, and as far as, you know, um, supporting his policymaking and his work as president, I think that helps to explain why Giffords, along with Everytown and Brady, came out so early uh, in endorsing Joe Biden's reelection campaign. A again, they've always had a seat at the table since Biden was sworn in. But now they've got an actual office in the White House. I'm kind of surprised, by the way, that Tambler wasn't asked about uh, the new White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Or if he was, that wasn't included in their uh, Q&A. Politico then asked, uh, well, uh, as a follow-up, even with Biden, they say, progress has been incremental. And Amber says, well, it's been incremental by necessity. He hasn't done, like, literally everything, right? Which, again, makes you wonder, what, what does Ambler think Biden should have done, could have done? but hasn't done. But he says, I know he's considered literally everything and done the vast majority of it. Like any president, there's a limit to their executive authority. I like to describe our approach as a sort of radical incrementalism. Now, again, I, I, I would love to know, what is it that the gun control groups have suggested that Biden has so far not acted on? Because Ambler certainly suggests that there are a couple of things that the gun control lobby has said, hey, we think you should do this, and so far the White House hasn't done it. So what exactly are we talking about here? One of the things I suspect that uh, Ambler might be thinking about is this push to reclassify semi-automatic firearms, either some portion of semi-automatic firearms out there or the entire body of semi-automatic firearms, as machine guns under the National Firearms Act. I've written about this at Bearing Arms over the past couple of years. The gun control lobby has been making this argument in legal filings. We've seen some uh, some sort of trial balloons floated through the trace and outfits like that, where gun control uh, lobbyists have said, well, I mean, listen, you know, back in the 80s, the uh, ATF uh, reclassified, uh, I think it was, was, there was, it might have been the MAC-10 uh, as, uh, you know, machine guns. So why not do that with Glock? Right or all semi-automatic firearms under the theory that they are readily converted to full auto. And since uh, they're readily converted, well, we should just go ahead and treat them like they're machine guns now. So if you own a semi-automatic firearm, you got to register under the NFA, you got to pay a $200 tax stamp. And if you don't, then again, you are uh, guilty of a federal felony punishable by a decade in prison. They've certainly floated that idea. So far, the Biden administration has not done it. I mean, that really would be a Hail Mary shot for the Biden administration. I'm not ruling out the possibility that they'll do it before the uh, 2024 elections, by the way. But I, I wonder if that is not one of those agenda items that Ambler wishes that the president had acted on, uh, but so far has not. 
As for that uh, comment about radical incrementalism, I, I thought that's actually fascinating because I think that there is, you know, Bruin sort of, Bruin did change the legal landscape. Uh, and I know that we've seen some bad decisions post-Bruin, right? You've got that uh, judge in Connecticut who says, well, I mean, AR-15s aren't protected by the Second Amendment. They're unusually dangerous. We've had the argument that uh, uh, magazines are not protected by the Second Amendment because they're not arms. They're uh, accoutrements. We've seen judges uphold sensitive places based on very flimsy uh, historical analogs, right? But we also have seen a number of good decisions coming from Bruin, and I think we're going to see more. So that did sort of change, I think, how the gun control lobby is approaching its tactics uh, and strategies going forward. They are obviously still very dependent on advancing their agenda in blue states, right? But again, even in red states... The gun control lobby is still there. I mean, Tennessee is a perfect example of this. When Governor Bill Lee called that special session uh, earlier this year, you know, he laid it out beforehand. We're not bringing up gun control. All that stuff's off the table. It's not going to be a part of this session. And the gun control lobby still managed to uh, get, you know, several hundred uh, activists out there in front of the Capitol demanding things like uh, universal background checks or ban on so-called assault weapons. So they are present. But it is also, I think, uh, illustrative that Ambler acknowledges what they're doing is an incrementalist approach. It doesn't stop with a ban on magazines that can hold more than 10 rounds. It doesn't stop with a ban on AR-15s and other quote-unquote military-style firearms. Right? It doesn't stop with these uh, sensitive places that are... In some cases, few and far between. In some cases, it provides the vast majority of publicly accessible spaces. It doesn't stop until, as Gabby Gifford said, there are no more guns. That is the end goal of the gun control lobby. It is radical, and they are taking an incrementalist approach. They get what they can, and then they come back for more. Um, we also generally take an incrementalist approach. Sometimes um, that gets in the way of, uh, well, I, I should say sometimes there are debates about whether or not that is the right approach. Uh, in North Carolina, for example, we had a, a push for constitutional carry earlier this year. Uh, NRA ended up objecting to the bill because they uh, said it didn't go far enough. You still would have to provide proof of training. Uh, grassroots North Carolina said, listen, this is as good as we're going to get right now. Uh, we can always go back and fix the bill afterwards. North Carolina is not a constitutional carry state. The bill ended up not going anywhere. I, I, I believe in an incrementalist approach. That's typically the way politics works. If you bite off more than you can chew, uh, you end up typically paying a political price for that, which is why both sides tend to go a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Um, also, I think for gun owners and for Second Amendment advocates, we are, again, having to build the case for the right to keep and bear arms uh, in a court system that has, again, not always seen this as a right, even after the Heller decision, certainly uh, portrayed it as a second-class right. And as we spoke about with Jim Wallace, the gun owners action league on yesterday's program, you know, again, we're having to convince or, or, or help people understand in states like Massachusetts that 
yeah, gun ownership is their right. It is a fundamental civil right to own a firearm, whether it's for self-defense, as the, uh, you know, most people buy a firearm, uh, or for recreational shooting, or just because it's my right, or because you're uh, afraid of an oppressive government and you want that in case of emergency break glass option. We have the right to keep and bear arms. But this is a right that has been treated as taboo in so many places across the country for so long that we do have to take an incrementalist approach, not only from a political perspective, but also in terms of getting people to acknowledge and recognize this right that is theirs to possess. Politico uh, asked a, uh, another softball question um, to Peter Ambler as their sort of a, a closing aside. Do you feel like you're leaving with more optimism than when you began, he said. Well, I, well what's, what's Ambler going to say? Well, let's see. We've now got 27 states that are constitutional carry. We've got uh, more than 400 million privately owned farms. We've got a million guns being sold every month for the last 50 months. Uh, no. Not particularly optimistic. Of course, he's not going to say that. He says, I'm an optimistic person. I think that the gun safety movement, with Giffords as a very critical part of it, has proven the doubters wrong. We've punched above our weight. Yeah. I mean, listen, Giffords itself, not funded by Michael Bloomberg, but the gun control lobby has the backing of multiple billionaires. (laughs) They're not punching above their weight. They're pretty weighty. Right uh, now, the success that they've seen in Congress, Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, this wasn't great. Um, but you know, even the Democrats have been forced to acknowledge that uh, the Biden administration, at the very least, the Biden administration, overreaching with that legislation when they pulled the funding for things like school archery programs or hunter ed programs, and the House and Senate, in what might be the last collegial vote to take place in quite some time, uh, ended up, you know, uh, renouncing the Biden administration's move and restoring funding for those programs on basically a voice vote in both the House and the Senate. So I, I know, again, that Ambler is not about to leave his position saying, well, listen, we didn't accomplish much. There's still more new gun owners out there. There are, you know, tens of millions of concealed carry holders in more than half the country. You don't need a concealed carry license to exercise your right to keep your arms. No, I think we've actually, we haven't done a whole lot. I can't really point to a lot of accomplishments in my decade in office. I, no, of course he's not going to say that. But it is kind of the truth. The gun control lobby is not going away. It's not going to disappear. And it still very much poses a threat to our right to keep and bear arms. But when you look at where we were 10 years ago, when Peter Ambler became executive director at Giffords, and where we are now, I would say the gun control movement has gone backwards. They have lost ground. And I actually believe that to be the case for basically the entirety of the gun control movement. Uh, going back to the 1960s, when the push was to ban handguns. How'd that work out? And then it was, well, we got to ban assault weapons. And they did for 10 years. And they have in a handful of states. The AR-15 is now the most popular rifle in the country today. Well, we can't let anybody carry a firearm. Well, every state in the union had at least a May issue law, even before the Bruin decision came down. And now, thanks to Bruin, every state has, in theory anyway, a shall issue regime. Again, in states like New York and California, Maryland, they are still doing everything they can to prevent those concealed carry holders from actually being able to carry 
anywhere in public. But uh, again, they have lost ground. They are playing defense. And we, as weird as it is to, to say, we're winning. Now, we haven't won. Our rights are not secure. Our rights are still very much in danger. We need gun owners to be involved and engaged in order to secure our right to keep and bear arms. But um, I don't think this is just my bias shining through here. I really do think that over the last 10 years, the gun control movement, uh, gun control movement has lost more ground than it's gained. So I wish Peter Ambler uh, well in the next chapter of his life, uh, wherever it may take him, including, I guess, as a senior advisor at Giffords. Uh, hope that uh, he enjoys whatever new challenges are to come, but um, I'll still be here, along with tens of millions of my fellow gun owners, fighting back against those efforts to uh, pin public safety to the eradication of this fundamental civil right. All right, now let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a story out of the Twin Cities. Families of victims outraged over last-minute plea deals by Hennepin County Attorney Mary Moriarty says she empathizes but stands by her decisions based on rehabilitation, not punishment. Yeah. You know, again, I am all in favor of rehabilitation. I, you know, I have friends who are convicted felons. They've gotten in trouble in their past. They managed to turn their lives around. I, I, I know that people can be rehabilitated. But her job is prosecutor, right? She's the district attorney or the county attorney. She's not the rehabilitator in chief. Her job is to ensure that justice is done here. And that means that there are consequences for violent crimes. The Minneapolis Star Tribune spoke to a woman named uh, Sharice Barnett, saying that uh, she listened in disbelief as Mary Moriarty explained that a teenager charged in her son's murder would not go to prison. Barnett said, I couldn't breathe. I, I said, I just got to get up out of here. I never would have imagined in a million years that it would have went that way. As the Star Tribune writes, she assumed that the only reasonable outcome for the killing of her son, Daryl Freeman, who was 27 years old, was significant time behind bars, which was suggested by those state guidelines. But no. Uh, as the Star Tribune writes, Barnett echoes a group of crime victims' families who say they feel re-traumatized but what appears to be a pattern with Moriarty's administration, the families are told that instead of seeking prison, prosecutors want probation. Notice even the abrupt change is urgent. It comes days before a scheduled plea hearing, during which the families say it sounds like the prosecutor advocates more for the defendant than for them or their victim. Um, Catherine Markey is an attorney whose son was also shot and killed by teenagers. And she says it's a trend definitely because of Mary Moriarty. She's still playing public defender. The only thing is that's not her role anymore. Uh, in the case of Daryl Freeman's murder, two 17-year-olds were charged back in May. Moriarty says they're being treated very differently based on their individual histories. The office is seeking adult prison for Jordan McFarland, but the other defendant, Monty Wise, would receive up to two years of treatment at a youth detention facility and be on probation until he's 21. Moriarty says her office looks at each case to figure out if a person is safe in the community, and accountability and public safety don't always translate to prison, she said. 
All of us have been conditioned to believe that the value we place in a loved one's life is the length of the prison sentence that they get. You know, again, rehabilitation has its place. I, I actually would agree with Moriarty to the point that I don't believe that every crime should be punished by years behind bars. However, we're not talking about, you know, an incident of shoplifting. We're not even talking about an incident of a robbery in which no weapon was used and no physical harm came to the victim. We're talking about someone who is murdered. I don't care if one of these suspects doesn't have a previous criminal history, if they've got a clean record, if they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong group of friends and things escalated and the life was lost. None of those are excuses to let somebody who is involved in a homicide off the hook. And again, it appears to be what's happening in uh, Twin Cities area, particularly uh, in Hennepin County with the uh, attorney, Mary Moriarty. Today's armed citizen story from Chicago, where a, a concealed carry holder fired back at a, a shooter who shot at a Chicago Transit employee in uh, Archer Heights. I, I got to tell you, I am always so grateful when I see an armed citizen story out of Chicago, given, again, that Illinois was one of the last states in the nation to uh, actually adopt a concealed carry law and has made it very difficult ever since. Uh, well, I, not very difficult, but burdensome. Again, there are no gun stores or ranges in Chicago. So if you want a concealed carry license, guess what? You're automatically heading outside of the city limit. And and that is more of a burden on some than others, right? If you are relying on public transportation, and you're hosed. In this particular case, the uh, concealed carry holder, I guess, managed to jump through all of the hoops and hurdles that the state has put before them, was lawfully carrying, well, was carrying, anyway, when uh, they shot back at a gunman who shot a bus supervisor on the city's southwest side. Chicago police said the uh, drive-by shooting happened around 2 p.m. in the Archer Heights neighborhood. Uh, ABC 7 talked with uh, Lorenzo Hernandez. Says he was caught in the crossfire while heading to work in his SUV. Said a, a bullet still lies in his SUV, stopped short of hitting him in a nearby tow truck driver. He said he was sitting at the corner of 47th and Archer when he saw a crash involving a CTA bus and at least four other vehicles. He said, I saw the bus hap uh, crash happen as I was stopped at the light. He said, after the crash... More than a dozen people got out of the bus and the impacted vehicles, and then somebody inside a white Dodge Durango fired at that group. One of the bullets hit the CTA bus supervisor who was responding to the crash. Uh, another one of the bullets, again, hit Hernandez's car. Uh, at the same time, Hernandez says a tow truck driver was able to move the vehicle standing by his SUV when he dropped down. Hernandez initially thought that the tow truck driver was hit, but then he saw him jump back up and run around the front of his SUV gun in hand, firing two shots at the gunman. So um, there was a little confusion as to where that armed citizen came from. He was not on the bus. It's illegal to carry on a Chicago Transit Authority bus. But if you're a tow truck driver who's coming to the aid of those on the bus, yes, you can lawfully carry. So the CCL holder was uh, legally carrying there on the streets of Chicago. Again, fired two shots at that suspected shooter. Uh, Hernandez says the shooting happened so quickly I didn't have time to react. He said, in Chicago, you go to work not knowing if you'll come back home. This happens everywhere. Thank God I didn't get hit. He said at the end of the uh, uh, ordeal, Hernandez said the uh, tow truck driver came over to him 
to thank him. He said, uh, if my SUV wasn't there, he would have gotten killed. Well, I would say the uh, tow truck driver in for some thanks as well. Um, police say the uh, CTA worker who was shot in the thigh, transported local hospital's condition, was listed as stable. A CTA spokesperson says the bus supervisor not the shooter's intended target. Nobody in custody, by the way. Uh, and I'm guessing, though we don't have any official confirmation of this, that the uh, concealed carry holder uh, in his actions is going to be ruled a, a justifiable use of force in defense of others, at least the way it, that, that's the way it should go down. But again, keep in mind, if you are riding that bus, or if you're on the uh, red line train or the green line train in Chicago, you are required by law to be disarmed. We see reports of armed robberies. We see reports of shootings. We see reports of stabbings on public transit. And yet, according to the city of Chicago, and by the way, some other states and some anti-gun judges, public transportation is one of those sensitive places where concealed carry can be banned because, um, well, let's see, in the most recent case, this was out of Maryland. The judge said, you know, there just wasn't a whole lot of private transportation or public transportation around at the time the Second Amendment was founded. So this is kind of a uh, a new thing. And uh, since there are kids and families that are often present on public transportation, yeah, that's a sensitive place. You can't carry a firearm. Telling the parents of those kids, you can't protect your children on public transportation. By the way, you also can't protect your children before you get on the bus and after you get off the bus. Because if you can't carry on the bus, you can't carry anywhere else either. If you are, again, relying on public transportation to get you around, you are disarmed throughout your day. Now, not only do we have criminals who are targeting people on public transportation, but again, as we just saw in Chicago, individuals riding public transportation can be the uh, victim of violent crimes as well. How about you? I would say that, uh, yeah, they absolutely have the right to protect and defend themselves in those circumstances. Finally today, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, a, a deputy in Tulsa County, Oklahoma, who saved a pregnant woman and her 11-month-old twins from a uh, blaze inside the vehicle uh, where they were trapped. Uh, this is a scary situation. Uh, deputy Ivan Patino was uh, traveling on Highway 75 when he noticed a truck stopped on the side of the road. He pulled over. He was just going to check on the people inside, and then he noticed smoke. Coming from under the hood, the truck's engine caught fire. Uh, Mom and the two 11-month-old twins in the vehicle, Patino was able to pull all three of them from the truck. Patino then tried to use his fire extinguisher to put out the blaze, but the engine exploded. He was overcome by smoke. He actually had, had to go to the hospital for smoke inhalation. Sheriff's office wrote in a Facebook post, Deputy Patino risked his safety to save this young family. We are exceedingly proud of him. Uh, as somebody whose own car has caught fire in the past, I know how quickly those blazes can erupt. Uh, and again, thankfully, Deputy Patino was in the right place at the right time. Most importantly, willing and able to do the right thing to save those three lives. So uh, we wish him well, hopefully a speedy recovery, and a huge thank you for his life-saving actions. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. I'm looking forward to being back with you again tomorrow. We're going to be talking with Larry Keene of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. You know, we talk about, again, all of those uh, two-way groups out there. NSSF is one of them. And they've actually got a new political action committee uh, aimed at electing lawmakers who will protect and defend our right to keep and bear arms. We'll be talking about that with Larry tomorrow. Look forward to uh, seeing you back here then. 
In the meantime, enjoy your hump day Wednesday. Head over to BarryAndArms.com throughout the day. Check out all the latest two-way news and information. If you like what you see, I also encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. Just go to BarryAndArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your membership. We really do appreciate your support. It is vital to uh, our mission of providing you that independent pro-segment voice. So thank you again for your support. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well. Be safe. And be free.